Well, as you take your seat, go ahead and open your Bibles to, to Luke chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. And as you do, I, I should not have to tell you that we are one week away from Christmas Day. So it means if you have not finished your Christmas shopping, dads, uh, then you husbands, uh, it's, it's, deep, it's, it's time. It's time to get started um, on that. And I also don't have to tell you, if you listen to the radio at all, um, that you can have your pick of Christmas songs, uh, good, bad, and ugly, um, all, all across. Now, you listen to the radio, and whether you're whatever genre that you like, you can find Christmas music. And some of it's just really good Christmas music, whether it's Christian or, or secular kind of areas, just some good classic traditional songs, whether it's Silent Night, um, Joy to the World, Away in a Manger, even I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, which is more of a reality for me having that here than there is uh, back in, in Memphis, Tennessee. But there's also a lot of really bad Christmas songs out there. And they, I, can, I can see I already have the heads bobbing and nodding, like affirmation. Like I saw Mama kissing Santa Claus. Um, I saw or the, the Chipmunks Christmas, which I was informed of after the last service. is like the most popular played Christmas song um, of all the radio stations, which I'm like, poor people have bad taste um, all over on that one. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. I mean, you really stop and you think about some of these songs that we're hearing played on the radio. It's like, that's kind of sadistic if you think about it. Like, Grandma got run over by a reindeer, and you're thinking about Mama getting kissed by Santa Claus, and, like, you've got counseling bills that have to be paid uh, for some of these things that are taking place. But in all seriousness, today we're going to look at a very special Christmas song, a Christmas song that doesn't get near the attention that it deserves to get. But before we look at that particular song, we're going to kind of look what comes before that song. So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard, heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a, be a fulfillment of what had, was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from the, their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So last week, as we opened up the text and kind of looked at the passage that came before it, we, we looked at Mary's visit that she received from the angel Gabriel who informed her that she, even as a virgin, was going to conceive a child, a child who was going to be called great, 
a child who's going to be called son of the Most High. And to provide her kind of with further evidence, if you will, that nothing, not even a virgin birth, is impossible with God, Gabriel tells her that her relative, Elizabeth, who is old, advanced in years, who has been barren, um, unable to have children, is now going to conceive a son herself. And so after hearing all of this from the angel Gabriel, Mary responds in verse 38 by saying, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And what we need to realize about verse 38, what we need to realize about Mary's statement here, is that it really is a a statement of belief. She believes what Gabriel has told her here. She believes all these things as, as kind of hard, incomprehensible as they are to imagine. She believes them to be true. But at the same time, can you imagine all the thoughts that had to be going through her mind? All the questions that she had to be having here of like, I'm, I'm a virgin. I'm going to have a baby. He, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow me, come upon me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, he's going to be what? The, the son of the most high, the, the son of God. I mean, can you imagine all the questions that she must be having in this moment? But yet, she issues a statement of belief there in verse 38. But at this time, as soon as the, the angel departs, look what happens in verse 39. This is where we're picking up today. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. As quickly as she can, as the text tells us, with haste. Now, it could have been like with hours. It could have been a few days. We don't, we don't know what haste means, but as quickly as she can, she makes her way down to, to Judah. She makes her way to visit Elizabeth. And the question that I have as I'm reading this is, is Why? Why does she go to see Elizabeth? Because look at the text, verses, specifically verses 36 through 38 again, kind of closely there. Gabriel tells her that Elizabeth is going to, to have, is pregnant with a child, that she's six months pregnant with a child. But what Gabriel does not tell her is, is that he does not tell her, go see Elizabeth. He's not telling her, pack up everything, go with haste, go see her. He, do, he doesn't tell her this, but that's what she does. So why does Mary go with haste as soon as the angel departs? Well, because she wants to see if what the angel said was really true. She wants to know if if like her as being a virgin, is she really going to be pregnant with the son of the most high, the, the son of God? Because if Elizabeth is pregnant, if Elizabeth is really six months pregnant in her barrenness, in her old age, then what does that mean for Mary? It means that what the angel Gabriel said is true. There's evidence backing up what this happened. It's not just an experience. It's why you don't just take one pregnancy test, do you? No, you take multiple pregnancy tests. You're like, and then you schedule a trip to the doctor. And you want to know, is that stick really saying what I think it's saying? Is this really happening? You've got this whole range of emotions that are taking place. It's like, for some, it's that long anticipated. We've been trying for years. And is this really our hope coming true right here, right now? And let me take another one. Let me take another one. Let me see. And then for others, it's, oh my goodness. We just got back from our honeymoon. What in the world is, ta- is this really happening? And, but you're taking the test and, and you're going through. Why? Because you get evidence and you believe and then you want more evidence. 
You want a further evidence to affirm what you already believe to be true. And basically what's taking place here is Mary just wants to see if the evidence is there to back up her experience. Like, did this really happen? Did did this angel really come and tell me that I'm going to conceive a child even as a virgin? Which is a reminder that even those with strong faith can experience doubt. Even those with strong faith can experience doubt. And contrary to popular belief, doubt is not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with doubt. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to, ask, to have doubts because doubt is going to do one of two things. It's going to either drive you towards belief or it's going to push you towards unbelief. It's going to do one of those two things. See, doubt keeps us from also making a lot of dumb decisions, right? There's a reason that we do not go diving headfirst into a pool with no water because it's a bad decision. It's going to result in in harm to us. There's a reason that we don't make a lot of other decisions because we have doubts, we have fears, we have hesitation, we have pause, because all of the common sense is saying, you need to question this. You need to have questions here. It's the reason that we don't believe a lot of the things as adults that we once believed as children. We once believed things wholeheartedly, and then what happened? We began to ask questions. We began to have some doubts. We began to ask questions. We began to seek evidence. And then we followed the evidence to the truth. And the truth began to real, real, reveal to us that some of the things that we used to believe just weren't true. That's what doubt is supposed to do. And the same is true when we experience doubt regarding our faith. And if we're honest with one another, every single one of us in this room at one time or another has experienced doubt as it pertains to our faith. Whether it's doubting our salvation or doubting the truthfulness of what we claim to believe, we have all experienced doubt in one way, shape, or form. And what we don't need to do is dismiss our doubts as a lack of faith. It's not what we need to do. We don't need to have someone come alongside of us like I had happened to me when I was experiencing doubts and just say, hey, you just need to have more faith. You just, just have a little bit more faith and those doubts will go away. Like, what does that mean, have more faith? I, I, I don't comprehend what that is. No, what we need to do is take time to explore the reason for our doubts. We need to say, why do these doubts exist? We need to be... A, open enough to say, I need to ask questions here. I need to seek evidence here. Maybe there's a good reason for our doubts. Or maybe our doubts are just unfounded. But either way, what we need to do is we should not dismiss them out of turn. We need to ask the right questions. We need to seek the evidence and see where they lead us. Belief or unbelief. Blind faith is not biblical faith. Blind faith is not biblical faith. Christianity is not fairy tale theology. It's not. Christianity is faith based on truth. Biblical Christianity is backed up by facts, meaning it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to examine the evidence because you know where the evidence is going to lead you? To the truth. I've been down this road It's why I stand before you today with such confidence and such boldness to know every word of this Bible is true. It stands up to critique. It stands up to the the pushback against evidence because the evidence is there. It's true. I mean, what if Mary had dismissed the encounter with Gabriel as preposterous? 
walked away and said, that was one crazy dream. I mean, really, like I'm going to have a, a, a child as, as a virgin. Really, that Holy Spirit's going to come and overshadow me. Well, you know, I'm just going to go check this out. I know it sounds crazy, but I'm going to go ask the local rabbi and see what he says about that. Oh, you know, I might ask some local townspeople, and I might ask a first-year philosophy student and kind of get their, their take on these questions that I'm having. No. She needs to pursue the evidence that God himself has provided. And the evidence that God himself has provided is, one, going to be her experience, but two, he's also telling her Elizabeth is pregnant. Pursue this evidence by, by common knowledge here. So the moment the angel departs from her, we're told Mary did what? She goes with haste. She drops everything to make the trip south to Judea. Now let's be clear. Mary doesn't ask for evidence here. She's not asking God for evidence. She believes what Gabriel has told her. But what she's doing is saying, God knows how preposterous this sounds. And he gives her the evidence. Hey, and it's also the fulfillment of a prophecy. He's saying, Elizabeth is going to be pregnant. In fact, she is already six months pregnant. And so what does Mary do? She goes with haste, she drops everything, and she makes this trip south to Judea, to Judah. A journey of some three to four days in length. And when she arrives, she enters the house of Zechariah and greets Elizabeth. And look what happens in verse 41. The baby, Elizabeth's baby, this being John the Baptist, what's, what's he do? He leaped in her womb. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And while some want to credit this, the baby leaping, John's leaping with kind of Elizabeth's excitement, that's not how she, being filled with the Holy Spirit, interprets what's happening here. She tells Mary, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And you mothers who have, have carried children and, and given birth, you know that you begin to experience, uh, I don't know this, but you know, and that's what I've been told, is, is that you begin to experience the, the patterns and the stuff of your children. You, you know kind of what's normal and what's not normal when they sleep and when they kick and when they move. It's why if something's wrong, you know as a mom something's not right. You, you learn those patterns. Even in utero, you're knowing the patterns of your child. I mean, and as parents as general, you learn the, the patterns of your children. You, you know the cries of your child. It doesn't take you long to turn, oh, that's the sad cry. Oh, my, that's the diaper cry. Oh, th that's the I'm hurt cry. I'm hungry cry. I'm scared cry. There's all the different cries. You learn these of your children. And so what we need and, and here is what we need to see is that for Elizabeth, she'd been pregnant for how long? For six months. By this point, she knows her baby's patterns. So when he leaps for joy, when Mary walks in the room, Elizabeth notices the difference. There's something different here. There's something different that's, that's taking place. So when he leaps for joy, when Mary walks in the room, Elizabeth, again, she notices this difference. And the question is, why does he leap for joy? Why does John leap for joy in Elizabeth's womb? And the answer is, for the same reason Elizabeth declares Mary as blessed. Because Elizabeth recognizes, as does the baby in her womb, that the promised Messiah is in her presence. The promised Messiah has just been carried into the room. And what happens in this moment is God uses Elizabeth, in a sense, as a prophetic voice to Mary. As is John through his leaping in her womb. 
They're both declaring Jesus to be the fulfillment of God's promises. His multitude of promises. As Elizabeth, being filled with the Holy Spirit, exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. See, Elizabeth acknowledges Mary's belief. She's acknowledging Mary's belief here. It's, what, it's Mary's belief in the angelic encounter that drove her to make this long journey, three to four day journey, down to Judah. She's not going to make that journey unless she has some type of belief, but it's kind of like first pregnancy test belief. Like, huh, I, I'm going to take another one. Uh, I, yeah, I'm going to schedule a doctor's, but you don't do that unless you actually believe that this could be true. And so that's the kind of belief that we see here. But when she arrives at Elizabeth's home, what happens? Elizabeth, being filled with the Holy Spirit, exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is Mary blessed among women? Because of the fruit of her womb. Because she is the mother of the Lord, the Messiah. It has nothing to do with Mary. John doesn't leap because of Mary, but because of Jesus. Mary's not the hero of the story. Jesus is. Jesus is the hero of the story. But now look at Mary's response. Look at how Mary responds after she sees that Elizabeth is really pregnant. When she sees that all of this, her encounter with Gabriel, all of that is true. It's all being revealed in evidence. Further confirmation that it is true. Like, I am going to have a child. How does she respond? Oh, that's cool. No. How does she respond? She breaks out into a song of praise in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done a great thing for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in, their, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. Now that's a song And I I spared you. I had mercy upon you by trying not to sing that to you today. There's no way possible for me to sing this song. But that is a song that is echoing from her heart. And these don't sound like the words of a young teenage girl, do they? They they don't. But but they are. And it's a song that is jam-packed full of allusions to Scripture. Evidence that her heart and mind are saturated with, with God's Word. For example, we see an echo of Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And themes from other prayers found in the Pentateuch and the Psalms and and the prophets. This song is evidence of how familiar this young girl was with the scriptures. I mean, her mind was saturated with them. So when when she burst out into this spontaneous praise to God, what flows out of her heart and off of her lips? The word of God. 
Scripture is what flows out of her heart and off her lips. The song is jam-packed full of allusions to Scripture. That's what we see. And, And look at her song of praise. Look at how it does. It breaks down into three parts. And so what we're going to do is we're going to break it down into those three parts as, as well. First, Mary praises God for his kindness towards her. That's the first part of her praise here. As we see in verses 46 through 49, Mary's praising God for his kindness towards her. Mary is praising God for how he has lavished his blessings upon her, for being her savior for choosing her in her humble estate, not because of anything that she's done, but in her humble estate to be the mother of her Lord, her Savior. As the words of that song go, the the child who would deliver her, she would soon deliver her, however that goes. The the child she would soon deliver would soon deliver her. She's going to carry her deliverer. She's carrying the Messiah From this point forward, all generations will call me blessed. Mary is praising the Lord for these undeserved blessings upon her. She's understanding how, even in a small sense, how big of a magnitude these blessings are. So notice how Mary's knowledge, this increased understanding, this increased awareness of the Lord's blessings upon her leaves her with this uncontrollable desire to do what? To praise and to worship the Lord. As she sings, my soul magnifies the Lord. Holy is his name. She's recognizing who God is and who she is and she's worshiping him as a result. But again, when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she's she's not coming at it in like a microscope magnifies and taking the small thing and making it big. It's like a telescope takes the, the heavens and starts to bring them into focus and still does not do them justice. She's just singing, saying, with a minimal understanding I have, knowing who I am, my soul magnifies the Lord. Holy is your name. Praising God, her Savior. That's what she's doing here. It's spontaneous and natural, heartfelt praise to God for what he has done for her. It's all she can do. There's no way that she can pay him back for this undeserved blessing in her life. I remember as a child, I got uh, like the Christmas present. It was like a Christmas present where totally out of the blue, you're not expecting it coming. It wasn't even on my wish list because it was too far out there. Like I wouldn't even have asked for it thinking I could not get it. And I opened up the present and it was, and I think it might have been like the afternoon, kind of like on the Christmas story, it gets his Red Rider BB gun at the very end. Like, I think this is like that type of gift. And it was in the afternoon, and it was a, a, a Nintendo, like the, the first Nintendo. Like the one where you had no save options on it. And so you're playing Mario, you get all the way to level eight, you saved it for 20 hours, you're finally there, and your mom takes you on an errand, you have to go run, and then you find out either she or your little brother or your dad turned off the Nintendo, and you're like, no! All those hours of meaningful work are gone. Horrible. So that, I mean, Duck Hunt, yes. Mike Tyson punch out. All of them. It's like, I find this is the Christmas gift. What do you think my reaction was? Oh, thanks. I'll pay you back with the allowance money that you've given me when I, when I get it all saved up. Thanks, I appreciate the gift. No. It was like immediately, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're the greatest parents ever. 
that morning, and I just said, I hate you. But like this morning, I'm like, thank you, you're the best ever. I was overjoyed with this undeserved blessing. And now I'm learning that's the awesome part of being a parent. <laughs> that's the awesome part of being a spouse, being the gift giver, being able to give to others. It's, it's like that is such joy to, to see the one you're giving the gift to just light up. But when you're the one receiving the gift, and it's that type of gift where it's like you were not expecting this gift, and it happens, and you open it up, you're like, whoa. All the, then all, what happens to your affections? They're turned towards the gift giver, aren't they? Which is a reminder, husbands, make it a good one. I'll leave it at that. But the same is true, but to a grander scale in our relationship with God. The greater our understanding of the gospel, the greater our understanding of the gospel becomes, the greater our understanding of who God is and who we are, the more our worship is going to magnify the Lord. When we begin to realize over and over again of how holy God is, how perfect and righteous he is, and how sinful we are, how undeserving of his grace we are. But in Christ, we who believe have been declared righteous, made right before a holy God. What's it do to our hearts? It compels us to worship. It compels us to praise. We begin to sing and to praise, magnify the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. Holy is his name. I'm praising you, O God, my Savior. Our souls, like Mary, are singing this song of worship. We're rejoicing in what God has done for us because we know how sinful us is. We know how sinful we are. And to think that God has had mercy upon me, what's it do? It drives me to worship and to praise Him. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But it doesn't stop there with her praise. And then in verses 50 through 53, Mary praises, her praise shifts from what God has done for her to what praising God for his kindness toward all people. So her praise turns from God's blessings upon her as an individual to God's blessings towards all people through his blessing of her. See, through Mary's robust knowledge of Scripture, and the promises of God, like her understanding the big picture of the Bible and understanding God's promises. She understands at least partially, can't say fully, that the child she's carrying isn't just a blessing for her alone. Jesus is a blessing for everyone who fears the Lord from generation to generation. Jesus is a blessing for people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language from every generation throughout all of history. And specifically notice the past tense in her language here. Specifically in verses 51 through 53, as she sings, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Everything here we see is in the past tense. 
Meaning Mary sees these future events as so certain to be accomplished that even though they're, they're future events, they can be portrayed as past realities. Why? Because of all the promises dating back to Abraham that she understands are being fulfilled in Jesus. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant promise to Abraham. The people scattered at the Tower of Babel are united once again in who? Is it Abraham? No. It's Jesus. It's the Messiah. And I'm not going to assume she fully understands how all these promises will be fulfilled. Because we see throughout the Gospels that that during Jesus' ministry, there were things that that she did not believe or understand yet. And And I emphasize the word yet. And she wasn't alone in this yetness. We, we see same, the same unbelief slash belief from the disciples as well. For example, Jesus asked Peter, in the company of all the disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, like anxiously, like, I'll be the one to answer for all the disciples. I'll say it. And he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And then what does Peter go on to do then? He goes on to deny Jesus three times, doesn't he? He goes on to deny him three times. And and then after the crucifixion, after the crucifixion, where are all the disciples to be found? They're all kind of huddled in a house, kind of confused, figuring out what to do. Do I go back fishing? Do I do this? What, what, What do I do? But why were they not at the tomb? Why were they not at the tomb waiting? Because Jesus had told them on three different occasions, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried in the grave and I'm going to rise three days later. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried in the grave and rise three days later. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And I'm going to be buried in the grave and I'm going to rise three days later. So why are they not at the tomb waiting? Because even though they believed he was the Messiah, they didn't comprehend fully what that meant. They didn't understand. So when he died physically, when he died in that moment, It was like, huh? Because here's why. They didn't understand that their deliverance would come through the cross and a grave and not through the government and a sword. It's the same confusion that we see taking place today. People wanting to put their hopes up in, if we just get the government right, if we just get the right leaders, then it's all going to be okay. Where's that in Scripture? Our deliverance, the peace that is found, comes through the cross of Christ. Jesus made peace, how? By the blood of his cross. Deliverance comes through the grave, through the cross and the grave. So it wasn't until after the resurrection that you see these men's lives changed. Because the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything for the disciples. It changes everything for Mary. It changes everything for James, Jesus' brother. I mean, think on that one. Can you imagine being a sibling of Jesus? That would be horrible. Well, you can't blame it on Jesus because he's perfect. (laughs) Jesus did it. Oh, no, he didn't. I mean, you have the whole concept there. James did not believe Jesus to be the deliverer in any biblical sense until after the resurrection. The same is true with the disciples and for Mary. Yes, they believed, 
But they, weren't, they didn't understand. It didn't click over until the resurrection. That, that's why the resurrection serves as the greatest means of evidential proof that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah over any other miracle in Scripture. If you believe every other miracle in Scripture, but you deny, deny the resurrection of Christ, you are not a believer in Jesus. But if you believe in the resurrection, what keeps you from believing anything else in Scripture? Parting the Red Sea, no big deal. Virgin birth makes perfect sense to me. Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then we need to believe everything he said. Plain and simple. That is the pinnacle apologetic proof of all of Scripture, is the resurrection of Christ. But here, in this moment of praise, Mary has enough awareness, enough belief, enough understanding to realize that the salvation of those who fear God is such such a certainty. It can already be seen as taking place. It's a past reality. It was as good as done. The same is true as it pertains to the certainty of God's judgment, which is also echoed here. She may not understand how, how it's going to take place, how all the details are going to work out, seeing that Jesus is clearly the suffering servant, but she knows it's going to take place. He is the promised one. And then as Mary concludes her song of praise in verses 54 and 55, Mary praises God for his kindness towards Israel. And by Israel, she's referring to what she understands in her context to be Israel at that time, the ethnic remnant of Israel, not the geopolitical nation of Israel that exists today, nor nor the church. That's where uh, she likely did not understand fully of what all this was taking place. But she sings. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She knows God is keeping his promises. She's aware of this. See, for Mary and the eventual disciples, Jesus represents a political deliverance from the Roman occupation, a spiritual deliverance as well. But it's a, it's a, it's a political deliverance and a spiritual deliverance from the Roman occupation who had come in and occupied the land. And all along, starting with Adam and Eve in the garden, it was God's people in God's place under God's rule. And then they're removed. Adam and Eve are no longer in God's place. They're no longer, they're no longer being God's people as he desired them to be. And they're no longer living under God's rule. But we see that pattern taking place. That's where the hope is. When, when things got under David and Solomon, it was like, yes, finally, we're again, want God's people, God's place under God's rule. But then we see the, the tragic exile and, and separation and everything that takes place. And it's like, no, that's still not it. And then we, we continue to, to move forward. And this is where that longing of the prophesied Messiah would come, where they're thinking, okay, they're going to remove the Roman occupation. It's going to be gone. And we, the remnant of Israel, are going to to rise up with the Messiah. And it's going to be God's people in God's place, under God's rule. And this Messiah is going to come like a Joshua-like figure, like a David-like figure. And it's going to remove them all. Wipe them out. Get them out of here like we did with Canaan. Get them out. And it's going to be good again. But that is not even close to what the reality is of how good God's promises are. They're seeing the political side, but they're failing to see that God is coming to seek and to save the lost through his son, Jesus Christ. He's going to come through the cross, and he's coming through the cross and the grave to make all things new. He's coming as a suffering servant. 
Her praise, though, is an understanding that God's promises will be fulfilled. In her knowledge, she's knowing that everything that she's ever heard as a child, yes, it's coming true in Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the answer to the prayers. Jesus is the one day that we've all been longing for. This was the dawning of unspeakable joy. Jesus is the dawning of unspeakable joy. So as we close, here are, here are a few things I want us to remember. One, doubt is not a bad thing. Doubt for just doubt's sake, that, that's bad. But as I said earlier, doubt is going to lead us to one of two places. It's going to lead you to belief or unbelief. That's where point number two comes in. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to seek evidence. The strongest faith, the people who have the strongest faith are the people who have asked the most questions a lot of times. They've wrestled with the text. They've sought out questions. They, at one point in time, you've heard me say this before likely, I, I believed this book because my mama told me so. And I'm thankful my mama told me so. But there came a point in time where I began to have questions. I began to have doubts. And I began to ask questions. I began to seek evidence. I began to compare the Old Testament with the New Testament, the New Testament with the Old Testament. And I began to read through. My youth pastor said, hey, I want you to go and, and everybody just read through the New Testament this year. Everybody read through it. Bad part on his end uh, because I, we actually did. I did that. And I'm coming back and I'm asking him questions. And he's saying, well, um, 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 uh, I'm, no, what about this? No, and it's asking, they need answers. And the answers are there. I no longer believe this book because my mama told me so. I believe this book because I have studied this. I have expounded this. I have sought evidence to this. I have seen and experienced the saving work of Christ. I have seen and experienced the saving work of Christ in, in believers' lives who were non-believers. And it's like, how in the world did that life change? Only by the grace of God. What in the world is going to bring a man like Saul who was out persecuting and killing Christians to actually become Paul who was out proclaiming the gospel? What's going to bring a person like Peter who's going to, I'm, no, I don't know the guy. I don't know Jesus. I don't know. What's going to make him to give his life for the cause of Christ? You don't give your life for a lie. You don't die for something you don't believe. You don't die for untruths. You die for facts. And when they saw the resurrected Christ, it changed everything. And I'm here to tell you with all that is within me, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. He literally lived and he died and he rose again. And because of his sacrifice, because of his life, we can have hope of a tomorrow. And we can have a hope of an eternity. This is the reason for Christmas. And this knowledge and understanding of Scripture, which is point number three, it helps us to understand the big picture. It helps us to understand from Genesis to Revelation. Oh, Jesus, there's a promise made in Genesis 3.15 of a serpent crusher. Yes, that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Oh, there's a promise made in Genesis chapter 12 of Abraham, a covenant of a great people, a great nation coming forth. Where's, oh, that's promise fulfilled in Jesus. 
Oh, in Isaiah, there's going to be one who's going to be born in Emmanuel, in Bethlehem. Who's that? Jesus. In Micah chapter 5, we can just keep going over and over again. It's all pointing to who? It's pointing to Jesus. It helps us understand the big picture. and reminds us that God always keeps his promises. Always. You're struggling through something in your life right now, and you're wondering, like, is God hearing me? Is God answering this? It, God always keeps his promises. Just look at Scripture. It's testified to the glory of God. It's testified to the faithfulness of God. It reminds us that God is in control of all things. Maybe this isn't the, the joy to the world Christmas for you. You're, this isn't the Christmas where you're so excited because there's so much junk weighing down upon you this year. You're wondering, how is it all going to make sense I'm here to tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, again, Jesus is in control of all things. All things. That's why we looked at the genealogy and traced it back and seen that every single little detail is being worked for the glory of God. And what does all this do? Does it just help us have knowledge, help us have comfort? No, it also drives us to praise God. One, it drives us to praise God for who he is. As Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Holy is his name. It's why after a service, when we, we move from the preaching of God's word and we're into the singing of God's word, when we sing songs like In Christ Alone or Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which I think I want you to sing that one when you come back up here. Uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, because we're just going to sing the story of Christmas uh, over again and just worship along with that. When we sing those type of songs, we're singing scripture. It's flowing from our hearts and off of our lips. It brings us to praise. It's bringing us to praise because we're looking at who we are. We're looking at who God is, and we're just praising him for who he is. We're praising him for what he's done. We're praising him for what he's done in us. As Mary says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. As we sing here in just a few moments, take time to praise God for being your Savior. And if he's not your Savior, if you don't know Christ, Ask him, wrestle with those questions, wrestle with those doubts. I'll be happy to talk with you. Whether it's after the service, right now you want to raise your hand, grab me, we'll go to the back. I mean, whatever, we'll, we'll, we'll talk, we'll wrestle with those things. But also praising him for what he's done for all peoples. Mary wasn't saved, just to sit back, and she wasn't used by God to say, oh, look what she did, he did for me. Now her blessing, as she recognized, was for all people from generation to generation. If you are in Christ, you were not saved to just come to church on Sundays and kind of go through the motions and have your Christian radio station and do your, your Christian thing. You were saved for, for the glory of the nation, for the glory of God's name to be spread among the nations. All peoples. To be a beacon of light to, to your neighbor and to your friends. To share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who have never heard to answer questions from those who are asking questions, to help people who have doubts wrestle through those doubts. And we're also praising him for what he's going to do. We're praising him for the fact that he is going to return. He's going to make all things new. He's going to save and he's going to judge. All of his promises are going to come true. All of his promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That, that's not for, for all the, the glitz and the glamour. We celebrate Christmas for Jesus. 
and we reflect upon his first coming. And we long together as believers for a second. So as the band comes and I pray, and we're going to sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we're going to join with all of heaven in, in, in singing praises to our God. We're, we're going to sing the truths of Christmas together. And you sung it loud beforehand, but we're going to sing it with joy and praise in this moment. And I can't sing a lick. So I'm going to be on the front row right here. You won't hear me. Band, apologize already. We're going to sing together. Well, let's, let's pray.